This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So imagine you're 28 years old and you're managing 50 people and you've never had any management experience. You've only had one job for three months, aside from when you worked at a chicken shop for a few years. Um, I'm really good at cutting up chickens, but I had massive imposter syndrome. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. And if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And thank you to all of you who've left us such great reviews. We really, really appreciate it. We certainly do. It's one of the main ways we can see that what we're putting out is making a difference. And we do read everyone. So please, if you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. Now to this week's episode. Our guest this week is a serial entrepreneur and one of Australia's richest and most successful women. She's also one of the humblest and most open people you're likely to meet. Yeah, she sure is. And we're talking about Cyan Taid, co-founder of digital marketplaces business Envato, as well as founder of ethical chocolate company Hey Tiger and Milkshake, a brand new app for Instagram influencers. Well, she sure is busy. Yes, <laughs> she certainly is. Cyan is a true creative and started her career as a graphic designer. After a brief stint working for someone else, she decided working for herself was the way to go. She and her boyfriend both began to freelance and started a side hustle to sell stock photographs. They quickly realized that designers needed so much more than just photographs and set about starting their own digital marketplace. And fast forward 13 years and Envato, the name of the company that grew out of that marketplace, is now worth more than a billion dollars. It employs over 500 people and has more than a billion digital goods for sale. Cyan's come a long way since those early chicken shop days of her very first job, hasn't she? She certainly has. In this episode, you'll learn how Cyan and her now husband, Collis, launched their business and then promptly set off to travel the world. Why an eye disorder that could have left her blind led her to leave her full-time role at Envato to start what may be the world's most delicious social enterprise ever. What Cyan did to get over her massive imposter syndrome and how she handles difficult conversations. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the inspiring and down-to-earth Cyan Taid. Cyan Taid, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me. 
absolute pleasure. It's been a joy. We've been looking forward to this for quite some time because we've been trying to lock it in, haven't we? Because you, you've been very busy. I have been doing a few things. Yes. You have indeed. Yes. And we're going to, we're going to delve into those things in a moment. <laughs> but one of the questions that we like to start with is just to give our listeners a sense of who you are right off the bat. How would you summarize what you do? The way I tend to think of myself is that I'm a person who makes a lot of stuff. So that's everything from global marketplace um, for designers and developers to a social enterprise chocolate company to charitable projects. I tend to do a broad range of things and my speciality is getting them off the ground and getting people engaged in them and interested in them. And you've been a creative all of your life, haven't you? I mean, that's the bones of who you really are. Well, both my parents are creatives. So my father's a photographer and my mother was a fashion designer. And I grew up in a very creative household where creativity was really seen as the absolute highest level of profession that one could have. So I remember having this realization at one point of, oh, I could I could have been a midwife, which I thought was an incredibly impactful and beautiful thing to do with your life. But it never even occurred to me. In my mind, it was, you know, only, only kind of creative things. So I actually trained to be a graphic designer right. to begin with. And what was your life and house like as you were growing up? My parents are very creative and they're very open people. A big memory growing up was my parents saying to me, look, darling, if you want to do drugs, that's fine. Just let us know and don't do heroin or acid and just give us a call before you do it. And then we can come pick you up if it doesn't go the way you want it to go. So great advice. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So my (laughs) parents were incredibly open to experimentation, really believed in finding something that you're really passionate about and becoming absolutely obsessive about it. I didn't figure out what I wanted to do for some time. So I was always a little bit stressed out about that because my father was always saying to me, you've got to find something you just love. And that didn't happen to me when I was six. That (laughs) happened to me a little bit later on, which is fine. And it all worked out, but it took me a little bit of time to find where I kind of slotted in. What did you find was your absolute passion? At its core, what I'm really passionate about is business as a source for good which is B Corp's line. I just, I haven't found any way of expressing it better. What I've always found really exciting about Envato. So Envato is a big organization now. It's a marketplace where designers and developers can buy digital goods. There's close to a billion items on there. There's over 500 employees. So it's gotten scale and that's really interesting in and of itself. What gets me out of bed in the morning in relation to Invato is the fact that creatives all over the world can earn a livelihood doing work that they love on their own terms. That to me is really genuinely exciting and the individual stories that come back from them. And Invato's impact on a social level. So, you know, we have a Indigenous Foundation. We've won awards for being the best company for diversity and inclusion in Australia. That I find really, really exciting. Our community of designers and developers who sell with us, they're close to earning a billion dollars in earnings. So that to me is what I find really exciting. At the core of it, I love the concept that business can make the world a better place as opposed 
to benefiting shareholders exclusively. You've talked about Envato, but I'd love to help our listeners understand more about its story and everything now. So you, I believe, founded it with two other co-founders quite some time ago. So can you tell us about how you sort of first arrived uh, jointly or individually at this kind of insight that this sort of online marketplace for creatives to earn a livelihood Mm -hmm. should exist? So I graduated from design school and I got a job with a fantastic design agency and I think I was an absolutely terrible employee, but they taught me a great deal during that period. After three months, I handed in my notice and I said, look, I really appreciate it, but this just isn't for me. I don't know what it is I want to do. I've learned a lot. I don't know what it is I want to do, but this is not quite it. In the meantime, I'd started getting a lot of freelance projects, everything from album covers to small government branding changes, like quite a breadth of projects. And that was all just people telling other people that I was good at what I did and cheap because I was young and didn't realize how much I should be charging it. And I'd met Collis, my husband, by that point, who was not my husband yet. He was a web designer and we thought, well, let's team up. I'll do the graphic design. Collis will do do the web design. Collis is a lot more – we're both actually fairly introverted individuals, but Collis is more introverted than I am. So I did a lot of the client liaison and he was a lot more kind of behind the scenes and he's a real, he's a gun. He's a great designer even to this day. And as a supplemental income, we started selling photographs on stock marketplaces, on micro stock marketplaces. And what Collis and I kept discussing was there were so many more things that as freelance designers, we would like to be buying other than photography and selling for that matter. At that time, Flash was really hot in, and it's since gone the way of the dodo, but Flash was a really big thing. Because um, this was, was about 2006. This was 2006. Yeah. And yeah. this was when if anything moved on your web page, that was Flash doing yeah. that. And so, you know, for things like pop-up ads, anything like that, everybody was using that. But there was literally nowhere you could buy the components that you might need in order to quickly make a project. So there was definitely a hole in the market in terms of purchasing flash stock. So we thought, well, what if we made a marketplace? We never thought it would get big. We thought we'll be the little competitor that, you know, is there doing something that no one else is doing. So we hired this amazing developer who we knew, you know, to work for us freelance to help us build this thing. And we thought, yeah, great, take a few weeks. We would set aside a few grand. We thought we can do this. Fast forward five months, we'd completed the project and the site was ready to launch, but uh, we'd maxed out our credit cards. We'd borrowed money from my husband's parents. We were living in my parents' basement and working out of their garage. We freelanced during the day to pay the bills and took on as many projects as we could. And on the evenings and on the weekends, we built up our first Invato product, which was Flashden. And then we launched it and it took some time to get going, but eventually we did. Now, I'd love to take you back to the growth days because Mm. what I understand is, you know, you launched Envato, but then you and Collis decided to go travel the world and work at the same time. So just so curious, sounds ideal. So that was a big thing that we'd wanted to do. We discussed wanting to travel before we had children. We thought, oh, well, we'll launch this online business. We'd read the four-hour work week and we will we'll launch this online business and it'll run itself and then we can, we'll be like Tim Ferriss and we can go yeah. traveling. And, of course, it didn't really work out that way. We worked 
absolutely just as hard as we could until we got to a point where financially we could afford to give ourselves a salary. And then we sold everything that we had in a garage sale. And then we got in a plane and we worked remotely for 18 months from around the world. Completely crazy. I mean, it sounds it, it right it was, now. It was like, you look back and you go, that was a really impractical thing to do. And it's one of those things that, again, sounds very romantic, but what you don't hear is, you know, you're in Paris and you're working till 10 p.m. every night and you're like, great, we're in Paris, you know, but we're really working hard in Paris. So while I'm incredibly happy we did it and it was a really interesting experience. I loved living out of a suitcase and kind of not having things. I found that really, really exciting and that freedom of it. We were working really hard. So you then came back to Melbourne mm-hmm. and you had this business that was going gangbusters at the time, was it? It was growing very quickly. So what had actually happened was the developer that we'd worked with had moved back to Melbourne to be closer to his family. We got a phone call from him one day going, look, I really need some help. This is getting too much. He was on full-time by that point. And we said, great, do you have a friend that's close that, you know, your friend who really knows what he's doing? Can you get him to help? He was like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. This happened five or six times. And then one day we got a phone call and then they said, oh, you know, we need a co-working space to all work together. One day we got a phone call and he was basically saying, look, um, you kind of have an office with like six employees in it. And I think it might be a good idea if you came back and like managed them because I really don't know what I'm doing here. We didn't know what we were doing either, to be clear, but we thought, oh, well, let's head back to Melbourne for a little while and see what happens and, and settle down there. And it really wasn't well thought out at all. This is, I just love this story. It's just great. <laughs> it sort of just, just unfolds as it, as it happens. There didn't sound like there was a grand plan or. There wasn't. No, there yeah. was just, and I think, you know, to some degree, if you do, like, I know they always say you've got to have these business plans and you've got to be thinking through 10 years and everything else. And I agree with that. You've got to be responsible. But on the other hand, if you just kind of look at it and go, okay, here's an opportunity. We're going to step forward. We're going to step forward. It hasn't actually served me wrong and it does remove a great deal of pressure. If we'd said at the beginning, when we'd first launched Invato, this is where we're going to get it to, we, it would have been so intimidating. We would have thought, how on earth are we going to do that? There's no way. I don't think it would have been any more efficient than just going, great, we're going to launch something and we're going to try and make it useful and we're going to try and do our best and we're just going to see what happens. Fast forward to only a year or a couple of years ago, Envato's going back gangbusters. It and you and Collis and your other co-founder are kind of icons in the Australian entrepreneurial sector by this stage. But you decide that for, for whatever, for different reasons, which I'd love to hear about, you know, that there's something else that you want to do. Can you tell us what that was and how that happened? So it's a weird story, honestly. I'd met a few social enterprise founders over the years. And every time I'd thought, what you were doing is amazing. I thought, one day I'm going to do this. One day. And Invato by that time had really evolved to an organization where rather than, you know, sometimes I'd be thinking about startups. I did some startups, quite a few within my time at Invato, but it was also things like international tax law, human resources policies. Like, it, you know, when you get to a certain scale in a business, 
as a sort of, you know, as a founder, as a leader within that business, you're kind of thinking about different things a lot of the time. So while I'm very grateful for it and I think it was a good learning experience for me and I'm still very passionate about Envato, I had come to the stage where I thought, all right, I've probably learned about as much as I'm going to here unless I'm interested in scaling a business really far beyond where Envato is now, which is not really my sweet spot. It's not something that I naturally find exciting in terms of the operational process. Because did you take it on the CEO sort of role at that point? Is it all- no, Collis was the CEO. Yep. I was executive director and I was working on a variety of different projects within the business. Right, got it. I'd been doing sort of variety of things during that period. Weird thing happened. I was on a panel actually and during that panel I was thinking my eye is really hurting. My eye has been hurting all day and it's just really starting to kill me. And I, you know, made my excuses and I went home as soon as, as soon as the panel was finished, didn't stay to chat to anybody as I normally would. And I came home and I was washing my eye out and I said to my husband, I just need to go to bed. I'm in a lot of pain here, but I'm sure it'll be fine in the morning. And I woke up in the morning and Collis turned around and looked at me and said, all right, I'm taking you to hospital. And it turns out I had a very aggressive bacterial ulcer on my cornea, which, you know, you may wonder why I'm bringing up this story. And the reason is that I had to stop everything. After I got out of hospital, the way this needed to be treated was I needed to put antibiotic eye drops in my eyes every hour, 24 hours a day. And being in the light was very painful and not good for it. So I had to be in the dark. So imagine that you're going from full pelt working and everything's absolutely normal, everything's fine, to suddenly you are in a dark room, you can't do anything you were normally doing, you can't read a book, you can't watch Netflix because you're sick, you can't do any of that stuff, and you're deeply sleep deprived, like weird sleep deprived. You're not sleeping for more than 45 minutes at a time for days and days on end. During that period, it just gave me a lot of time to think. It was like sensory deprivation. And during it, I suddenly thought, well, if I really want to do a social enterprise, I should do this now. And I started to think I would love to do something that I've never done before. I'd love to do a product targeted at women. I'd love to do something that's tangible. So I came out the other side of that. My vision was fine, luckily, because they did tell me they thought I was going to lose my eye. So I was fine. So I also had a renewed, like, life is short to do it now type of (laughs) of feeling behind me. And I thought, well, I'm just going to start playing around and see what happens. Once I got the sense that chocolate was something that I felt like there was a hole in the market and I felt like there was a real purpose from a social enterprise point of view. I'd wanted to be a chef when I was a kid. So really every day I'd finish up at Invato for the day, I'd come home, I'd hug my kids and I'd get in the kitchen just start making chocolate. Amazing. And what landed you on chocolate? Because you'd listed those great attributes if you wanted to be for women, mm-hmm. have a social enterprise aspect. I thought, well, this is something that brings people a huge amount of joy. Women in particular get very passionate about their chocolate. There's not a range of offering for them. There's nothing that's being branded to them, nothing that feels celebratory and festive and edgy and exciting. I feel like that's something that I would want to buy. I'll give it a crack. And this isn't just any old chocolate, is it? Oh, well, I, look, I don't think so. No, well, nor do we. we. Not. <laughs> nor do we. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's high-end with really imaginative 
creative, mouthwateringly delicious sounding flavors. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, so it's interesting when I first started looking for a chocolatier to work with. So I, I made all this chocolate and then I blind tested it at the Envato offices. So I got my EA to tell some people who were passionate about chocolate at Envato that she needed them to kind of blind test these different chocolate brands for corporate gifting, which they thought was bizarre because she's sitting them in this room going, so what do you think of the mouthfeel of this one? (laughs) And going, you're really overthinking this line. Um, But what I wanted to get to is I wanted people to sort of say that what I was making was better than all those competitors that are out there, better, more interesting, more exciting, whatever it might be. So once I got that proof, I went and tried to find a chocolatier. And then I found this incredible woman through actually Friends at Thank You Group, the social enterprise. She used to run a chocolate company and her sister was a chocolatier, sister-in-law, I should say, was a chocolatier. And they said, no, no, we think we can do this. And we went to One Roof Coworking and we all sat there together with a whiteboard and we went, all right, what are the most exciting flavors that we always wanted to try with chocolate, but just wasn't practical to do, which you wouldn't normally do. And if I got you extra equipment, if I got you a freeze dryer, a dehydrator, what could we do? What could we play with? We came up with some really, really exciting innovative, unusual stuff. And we, you know, we're in a great space now where we just released five more limited edition flavors. There's another one coming in July, another one coming in September, four more after that. Like we've, we're kind of taking a bit of a, an experimental approach to this and it's just so fun. And through this process, have you had to struggle with imposter syndrome or anxiety that you're not going to be able to do this or? So I, for a long time, so imagine you're 28 years old and you're managing 50 people and you've never had any management experience. You've only had one job for three months, aside from when you worked at a chicken shop for a few years. Um, I'm really good at cutting up chickens. But I had massive imposter syndrome and I went through this period where we kept on bringing in these really senior people from corporate land into the business and kind of going, all right, well, the big kids are here now. I'm just going to step back and then going, oh, wait a minute, they don't know better than I do and then, you know, like needing to get involved again and realizing that actually you do have some irreplaceable skills and insights as a founder that you can't get from other people. So that's been an interesting process and an interesting learning for me. And I did have to go through a period where I realized, so I I had this interesting conversation with a VC, a US VC, and we've never taken VC funding, mm. but we chat to them now and then. It's always one of those things that we'll never say never. It's good to have the relationships. But back in the day, you know, this US VC who's used to dealing with US founders, US male founders basically exclusively, was asking me about my skill set, Envato's offering, and after about two minutes he just completely discounted me, just completely discounted me, and the conversation was effectively over. And I went away from that conversation and I thought, all right, well, he's used to speaking to people who are, you know, you speak to guys from Silicon Valley who have startup and they know how to. Full of bravado. Oh, oh, oh yeah. It's, it's a different world. Totally. And I didn't want to be like that. I actively dislike that. And I've always thought, well, you know, I'm a person with humility and, and I'm also an Australian and we don't like to talk about ourselves. We don't like to bigwig ourselves. But I did realize from that that 
I was discounting myself to a point where maybe it was a problem. So I had a look at the people around me who I felt had really like natural confidence. They weren't like to a point where I was uncomfortable. They didn't bigwig themselves, but they knew what they were good at and they were comfortable in their own skin. And I started to model them. And I realized that they were really comfortable with asking questions. I always felt like I needed to know everything. And if I didn't, I didn't ask the question. I'd, you know, maybe kind of try and figure it out afterwards, but I didn't ask the question in the room because I was worried about being vulnerable because I did feel vulnerable most of the time because I was a bit scared that I wouldn't be able to do it or that maybe I wasn't good enough. I would both try and discount what it was I wasn't good at. I also wouldn't acknowledge what I was really strong at. So I literally went to the people around me that I trusted and I said, what am I really good at and what am I weak at? Just tell me honestly, just lay it on the line for me. And that was really challenging to read, but it also made me realize I was discounting my strengths. And I think the real power in being really conscious and clear about what your strengths and weaknesses are is you can lean into your strengths, but you can also account for your weaknesses. So with Hey Tiger, I have a COO slash CFO and he is a gun. He is as right-brained as they come because I, I need that. I need that to balance me out. Yeah. And it sounds like you've been on a really proactive journey to understand yourself better. I Yes. I tend to think of my work as encompassing that as well. If I go, okay, my work is what I do all day long and then every now and then I do a little bit of self-development, I don't actually think that's helpful because I think me being good at my work is about me being really excellent at what I do, really efficient, really switched on. And so I will factor into my work day anything I feel I need to do in order to keep me balanced, really effective. And, you know, that includes good self-care and ensuring that I'm self-aware at any given point. Yeah, that's really refreshing to hear because I think a lot of people, particularly women actually, tend to put themselves sort of at the bottom of the pile. And so self-care, self-development gets deprioritized. I'm guilty of that as much as anyone else. And I realized I just can't do that anymore because when I do that, I burn out and I'm not as good at what I do. It's been important for me to get to know myself a bit better and to prioritise that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And in your past role at Envato Mm -hmm. and also your current role, roles, because there's another business that you've just started, how have you dealt with difficult conversations, those conversations with individuals where you know you've got to have the conversation, Mm -hmm. but you know it's going to land really badly. What are your tactics? For a long time, I was really bad at that stuff. I'm somebody who generally avoids conflict. I'm better now, but I used to be somebody who really would go out of my way to avoid conflict. And I think I came to the conclusion that I needed to get good at being really clear without making it mean anything. I also really believe in the concept of servant leadership. So for a long time, I didn't quite understand how I worked as a leader because the other leader models that I was seeing in my area were very alpha, very confident, very, you know, I am the source of all knowledge. And it took me some time to realize that I could lead in a different way, which was you are very good at what you do. I'm here to support you in doing what you do and we're doing this together. 
once I realized that that was how I led and it was actually a very effective way of bringing people together, it then freed me up to be able to have those conversations and go, look, I'm here to support you in what you're doing and these things just don't work and this is why. But I'm willing to discuss it for as long as it takes. I have to be totally honest though that if I don't feel like there's hope and a way that we're going to get to a point where we can work really collaboratively, I tend to move on very quickly. Yeah, that never easy, is it? No, look, it's it's really unpleasant. On the other hand, you know, you my creative director, Mirta, she's just really wise, my creative director for Hey Tiger, and I can go to her and I can talk to her about stuff. And I remember one day there was a really difficult sort of people thing happening. And I said to her, oh, it's just really difficult feedback to give. And I'm wondering if I can kind of sugarcoat it a bit. She said, you are not doing them a service by shielding them from feeling the pain because if they don't feel the pain, they're not going to grow and you're not actually helping them. You think you are, but really you're only helping yourself right now. Yeah, make you feel better about the conversation. As we've mentioned briefly, there is another business in the wings. It's very, very young and and we're very excited to actually have this chance to be speaking to you now. You're just in the process of Mm. launching – Another whole business. It's called, I think, Milkshake. It's called Milkshake. It's it's one of those things that I think while we were developing Hey Tiger, Hey Tiger became a bit of a viral hit on Instagram and that's because when it arrives, it's beautifully wrapped, it's very visual and so, you know, we never had to pay an influencer. We generally just ended up sort of working with these influencers. They'd buy chocolate, they'd be sent it and they would unbox it and it became a very, very shareable thing. And so over that period of time, I saw the power of Instagram and I saw the power of these influencers and I came to just realize what guns they are as businesswomen. The interesting thing about these women is generally they work on their phone. So they work all day on their phone and many of them don't have a website presence because all the other website makers, aside from Milkshake, require desktop and they're not very intuitive. And we thought, well, what would it be like if we made something that, you know, you could sort of have a web presence via Instagram and do it on your phone in 15 minutes. And the initial idea was that we would set up all these different designs and you could literally just scroll through. We talked about shaking your phone in order to get, you know, like you, you've inputted everything you want to put in there and then you can just sort of press a button or shake the phone and a new design comes up over and over again until it's something that's on brand for you. Easy to update. You can do it from your phone and it sort of becomes part of your personal brand. Exciting. So mm-hmm. And, and what's the business model? Because it is under the banner of Invato, it's a completely free product for now. And we're taking the tack that we had a lot of this technology already built within Invato and it was just a matter of developing it in this direction. And then I think the idea is eventually that, look, if it's got legs, which I really think it does, but if it gets to scale, then eventually there might be some functionality in there which might have a paid sort of subscription model behind it. But for the moment, for the foreseeable future, it's going to be completely free and it would only be, for instance, if you wanted to sell an ebook via there or something related to that that you might want to upgrade. Love to shift. You've talked about, you know, working on Hey Tiger in the evenings. You know, you've got two boys, I think. Mm-hmm. How do you think about juggling work and life? 
I'm actually an extremely boring person. I will take my boys to school. I'll go to the gym. I'll go to work. I'll come home. I'll focus completely on my boys and then I'll go to sleep and I'll do it all over again. And I focus on my husband in there as well, I have to say. (laughs) I really don't socialize much. I'm extremely focused on my work and I think I also want to be an active parent. And so really that means that I don't do much else. I don't have hobbies. I work, kids, gym now because of chocolate. Um, (laughs) And that works for me. And I also think occasionally I need to take a day. Like on Friday, I actually, you know, said to the Hey Tiger team, because it was one of my Hey Tiger days, I said, look, do you mind if I don't come in? I just need to breathe today. I read and I sat there and I hugged my dog and I was just kind of literally took a breather. Because I think especially if you've got kids and you're working, it's an intense combo at the best of times. Sprinkling in a bit of self-care in there as well and just not being ashamed to go, oh, no, I need to kind of take a bit of a break now and I need to rest and I need to take care of myself is also, you know, important. Now, one question that we like to ask is, you know, if you take yourself back to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give yourself? This is one of those things that honestly, it's more related to my personal life. When I was 30, I just had my first child, which he was a surprise. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He came a bit earlier than I was expecting, but I had a full blown identity crisis when I had my first child because my whole life had been about working really hard. Like to give you an idea, when I was seven months pregnant, we rented this little apartment in the city, which was a one-bedroom apartment, which was a five-minute walk to the office, and literally all it had was a mattress on the floor, a couch, a television, and a turned-over milk crate as a coffee table. We didn't have a car, so that gives you an idea of the level of maturity that you were working with in every area outside of work. Sounds like a uni student or, yeah, you know. We literally just worked. Yeah. We just worked and we loved it. We worked together and, and it sounds kind of depressing, but it wasn't. It was super exciting and fun and you're surrounded by people you really like. It was a great thing. But my identity was so tied up in my work that suddenly having a child when I was the first person in my group of friends to have a child and I was, I'd was i grown up as an only child, I had no idea what having children was actually like, was a massive shock to me. And, you know, I had this idea I was going to be this Mother Earth character who would get incredible fulfilment, you know, from just being present watching my child play with blocks. And while that can be really, really beautiful all day long when you're used to running really fast with work and you're also really, really really used to setting goals and setting a structure to get to those goals and meeting those goals to suddenly have that all taken away and going, I feel completely out of control in my own life and there's this beautiful little human that I love so much that it absolutely hurts. But everything that I've relied on in terms of my identity is gone was probably, I think, the most challenging time of my life, to be quite honest. So I think during that period of time, I felt like I kind of lost myself a little bit and it took some time to get that person back. But I think it was also really healthy in terms of not being able to control everything and that being quite a beautiful thing and and needing to learn to be more present. So I think that what I would say to myself during that period is really simple. It's just, look, it's all actually going to be okay. And, you know, your life has seasons 
And right now, this is the season of you slowing down, being present, relinquishing control, seeing the beauty in the moment, not needing to achieve. And you're going to learn from that. And it's going to make you a more well-rounded human when it comes to doing these other things. And you're going to get to know yourself a lot better in the process. Yeah. Mm. Wow. If only you were there at the time to give yourself that advice. If only. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cyan, it's been such joy. You are a an inspiring and creative force and we can't wait to see what you do next, you know, with so many startups and ventures under your belt and Milkshake about to launch. If listeners want to learn more about your ventures, we'll obviously put links on our episode page, but if they want to learn more about you and where would you recommend they go? I think the best thing to do is to go to my Instagram page, which is Cyan C. Taid, and then from there they can get to my milkshake if they want to hear more formally about me. Otherwise, they can just see lots of photos of chocolate and Invato and generally what I'm doing every day if that's interesting. Brilliant. And we'll put your Instagram handle on the uh, the link on the episode page at Don't Stop Us Now too. So, no, thank you again. It's been a joy. And I think we might have to do a chapter two in, a, in another year's time to see what else you've got cooking. Great. That sounds great. Thank that- you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. What I really love about Cyan is her absolute honesty. You know, how many seriously successful tech entrepreneurs would tell you that they had massive imposter syndrome? Certainly, I don't think any men would. (laughs) For sure. Or that they were really bad at difficult conversations. You know, she's just so down to earth and I really, really respect that about her. Absolutely. You know, I think it's so important that we have people like Cyan who are prepared to show us that you don't have to be perfect to be successful. Yeah, it really is. And that leveraging your strengths is absolutely key. Yeah, for sure. Really knowing yourself and what you are good at and what you're less good at. Yeah. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode where we feature the amazing career journey of Ethiopian social entrepreneur, Brooke D. Tigabu. Can't wait. See you then. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.